all of this, everything we do, whether it's on the financial services side or the gerontology side, it's about dignity, maintaining your dignity. Lifestyle is about dignity. Healthcare for me is about dignity, and this is personal and professional. That's Danny Hutcherson. He's a reformed Wall Streeter, financial gerontologist, and a former U.S. Marine. We sat down with Danny during our My All's Road Trip stop in Louisville, Kentucky, to learn more about how his personal experiences with Alzheimer's continue to shape his role in the financial industry and help families navigate the challenging aspects related to money and aging. So on a personal level, uh, I'm the grandson of three dementia grandmothers, uh, two of whom had uh, Alzheimer's and two dementia uncles, one of whom is living with it today and the other committed suicide shortly after his diagnosis. Really the thread between the personal experience and you know, my professional passion work now centered around Alzheimer's came from my grandmother, my third grandmother with Alzheimer's, Norma, was diagnosed after a fall at home that left a very bloody scene in the garage. EMS came, we didn't know where she was. And that was our introduction to Alzheimer's for her. It was the third installment in our family. We readied her home for sale. From that, had just over $100,000 to provide for care. Took her to a very reputable facility to provide the care that she needed post-diagnosis and after uh, rehab. We were told that when the money ran out that she could move to a Medicare bed shortly before the money ran out. And I'm sure you've heard this story before. We got the phone call, my mother received the phone call that they had no availability in Medicaid beds and that we needed to take her home. So I called a friend who's in the senior care industry who sent out uh, an evaluator who was told when they arrived at this facility who'd taken care of her for over a year and who had accepted that $100,000 that she could perform all of the activities of daily living, that she was fine to go home, that in fact she wasn't even eligible for Medicaid, which we didn't accept. And thankfully, that second facility didn't accept either. And they sent a medical team over, had her fully evaluated and determined that her situation in fact had worsened, that she needed help on five uh, ADLs and she was then transferred to the new facility. I got the phone call from my friend who said, you know, we're going to take care of your grandmother for the rest of her life. And they did. As a financial professional, that was the first time that I felt shame, not about the disease, but that I wasn't in a position to protect, you know, one of my own family members. By that time, I'd been in the industry, had developed relationships with clients on the professional side for 15 years. And in my own backyard, in my own family, I felt like she'd been financially exploited, that we didn't ask enough questions. We didn't know where to turn. And then hearing similar stories, watching things happen to our own families, having caregivers, extended family members call, trying to put their hands into the assets that we were protecting for clients. I knew I needed to take action. So I uh, enrolled in the University of Southern California's master's program in gerontology, was fortunate to study in Israel with them and completed that program a couple years ago. And it has transformed what we do for our current clients, how we talk with children, grandchildren about financial planning decisions. Should our parents relocate to be near us? Should we take them on vacation? Should we choose this kind of a facility over another? And for the first time in my career, after now 20 years, 
I finally have some answers to those. I at least know the right questions. According to a 2020 statistic from the Alzheimer's Association, the costs to Americans of caring for those with Alzheimer's and other dementias total an estimated $305 billion. It is the most expensive disease in America. Whether you're a seasoned caregiver or have just begun researching the best ways to manage the personal costs of caregiving, you're probably already familiar with how complex the issues of financial planning can be. So we wanted to better understand the role of a financial gerontologist and why we all need to think very critically about financial planning, even if we're not currently facing an age-related health crisis like Alzheimer's. I'm for a moment going to set aside the financial gerontology designations that you can purchase for 100 or 200 hours worth of study and passing an, you know, an online test or a moderated test. Setting those aside practically, a financial gerontologist is a master of two domains, financial services providing point of service care and advice to an individual with respect to all of their finances, their full balance sheet, not just investments, but talking about, you know, what are your current expenses? What are the resources? Your assets aren't just dollars, assets are resources to fund future expenses. And that's the lens through which we view assets you know, as really a pool of resources to draw from to maintain your lifestyle. So mastery of financial services would require expertise in financial planning, but also in investing that money. So uh, taking the money and tying it to goals, specific financial goals. Second would be mastery of the concept of aging. Gerontology is different from geriatrics in that geriatrics tends to focus on needs in later life and specifically more medical needs. Gerontology is the study of aging from conception to death. So it's the full spectrum of aging and it's the biological, psychological, socioeconomic factors of aging. And mastery of that, uh, in our opinion, requires advanced education, graduate level, where, you know, whether it's a master's or a PhD. So the number of people who are really eligible in my opinion, too, with competence, call themselves financial gerontologists. It's a pretty small group of us who have attained mastery in both of those fields. According to the National Institute of Aging website, a person with Alzheimer's may try to hide the fact that they're having difficulties paying bills or balancing a checkbook. Danny offered some insight as to how to spot the early signs this may be happening to a loved one in your life and what you can do to help mitigate some of the potential financial catastrophes when these warning signs go unchecked. With respect to cognitive impairment, we find that you know, across all the domains of impairment or of cognitive processing, financial capacity is one of the first to go. We see checks bouncing, people signing up for charity things online. We see that happening first, long before we see people forgetting to eat, not remembering where they put things. The other behaviors that usually trigger the investigation into someone's cognitive position is on the financial side. It's because of how the hippocampus in the brain, uh, which is our executive functioning center, there's an enormous requirement there of, you know, it synthesizes, you know, personal relationships, numbers, you know, it's not as simple as we think. We may take for granted the number of small processes involved with paying a bill. 
and you know, and then judgment, you know, on top of that. So my advice to families where they see the signs of bills not being paid, new unusual transactions and their checking accounts, but you better check those credit cards because boy, grandparents overall, just you know, older people know how to hide those, you know, especially if, you know, kids are involved in the finances. Don't doubt that they didn't just open up a $1,000 Macy's card just so you can't see for a moment what they're purchasing. So check their credit reports. If you notice a change in behavior, the first action is I would pull a copy of their credit report. I would investigate every suspicious charge. From the moment that you notice that either bills are not being paid, they're overdrawn, suspicious transactions, if they can't find their checkbooks, if they haven't opened their statements. Unfortunately, a lot of our clients don't open statements, but whether you're working with a fiduciary or not, have a conversation with the financial institution to alert them that you notice this change. Every institution depends on whether it's a bank, a credit union, an investment firm, an insurance company, depending on how you're invested, where your money is, that conversation or the response to that conversation might look a little different. In some cases, they might ask you to be a power of attorney, which your loved one will have to sign off on that. But number one, it's important to alert them that you know something is happening. That's one way of protecting yourself from what we call internal financial exploitation, internal to the financial services institution. But number two, it also creates liability on their side to do something about it and to be your advocate as a family and to be your loved one's advocate. Reach out to the financial services organization, have a conversation, get yourself added if you can, get duplicate statements where the financial services organization will allow you to do that and where your loved one will allow you to do that. It's important to do that so that you can evaluate them so they don't hide them or you know they don't just find their way into the trash can. As Danny explained, oftentimes we wait until a life-altering event occurs before taking action. But it's important to seek help early on, not only to ease the enormous financial burden, but to better understand who you can trust with your money. We find that people engage a financial advisor before, immediately, after, occasionally during, but it's often after a major life event. Something has happened that they don't feel equipped to deal with on their own. And so they seek the counsel, the advice of, of someone who's very often referred by a trusted advisor, a CPA, an attorney, a friend, a family member. Those are the strongest referrals where they're from someone we're referred into uh, a client situation where the introduction is from someone they trust. And second, where there's a, a need, there's a life event, there's a diagnosis, there's a death, there's a birth, there's a marriage, there's college to pay for, there's imminent retirement. The questions which will distinguish someone they can trust, this is about trust. The questions are, are you a fiduciary? So any family member should be asking of the financial services professional in front of them, are you a fiduciary? By the way, it's not a bad thing if you're not a fiduciary. There are plenty of roles. When you walk into the bank, the bank itself is a fiduciary, but the teller sitting in front of you is not personally liable for giving, if they make a mistake and tell you your balance is one thing, you can't sue them for that. That's just a poor service experience. But you need to understand, particularly when you're making complex financial decisions or investment decisions, 
am I dealing with a fiduciary, with someone who has an unconflicted duty of loyalty to me? That's question one is, are you a fiduciary? Question two is, will you put it in writing? And so for the people who say they're a fiduciary, but who may be either duly hatted, perhaps you're a fiduciary some of the time, but you also can put on that sales hat and earn a commission. And that's question three is, how are you paid? And can I see it? So are you a fiduciary? How are you compensated? And what am I paying, the fees and expenses? If you can ask those questions on the front end of any engagement with a financial professional, you should know very quickly by the level of candor, by the production of a document you can sign, and by samples of what the fee disclosure looks like, like your fees should be part of your statement. It should come from something official. It should not be in a spreadsheet that doesn't come from the financial institution. You know, those should be red flags. But I think consumers themselves have a role in demanding the level of care that they deserve, whether or not the industry, the regulators, and the advisors themselves offer that freely. No financial product is perfect, and the systems that enable poor products to continue to be circulated are also in need of adjustment. Therefore, it requires all of us to remain diligent. Danny provided some insight into what he thinks needs to change and what role we all need to play in order to be better stewards of our financial futures. Ideally, it would be top-down policy, policymakers. Uh, so the regulatory bodies, the uh, fiduciaries, financial advisors as fiduciaries are governed by the Securities and Exchange Commission and specifically the Investment Advisors Act of 1940 created the parameters by which we are evaluated for adhering to that duty of loyalty, delivering unconflicted advice and disclosing where there is a conflict. But it's more than that. It's the institutions themselves, which exist as, in most cases, for-profit organizations, with the exception of a few like TIA, CREF. And in those institutions, you see conflict of interest that begins at not only the point of sale, it's far before the point of sale, the point of manufacturing. When you have financial institutions manufacturing products that they are then placing into the hands of consumers, if the person placing those products in the hands of consumers is not a fiduciary, I think it's reasonable to assume that they're not acting in the best interest always of their clients. So I think it starts with the regulators and policymakers, the financial institutions should be held to a standard of care, a standard of operating that puts clients first. There are many good people in these financial institutions, by the way. So when I say this, I don't mean to impugn you know, a whole category of professionals because I was one of those professionals. I have many friends who are highly credentialed, educated, take great care of clients, but the products that they're allowed to offer to clients are curated to achieve revenue goals. Uh, and their shareholders, of course, expect that. So I understand, I cognitively, I understand that. So it's the regulators, it's the financial services firms uh, at the point of service. Ultimately, I think we have the greatest opportunity right now to impact the financial professionals themselves by creating a standard of practice that would arm them with the questions to ask to recognize the signs of cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment all the way through how to deal with people who've received a diagnosis. That is what a great deal of my efforts right now are working on is how do we recognize the signs of impairment? What do we as financial service providers, as advisors, as registered representatives, 
what can we do to take care on a person-to-person level to protect them from either other financial services providers or family members. So it's top down all the way from, you know, from government to the point of advice. According to the National Council on Aging, up to 5 million older Americans are abused every year, and the annual loss by victims of financial abuse is estimated to be at least $36.5 billion. It's a growing problem that needs more attention if we're to effectively safeguard our families. And as Danny explained, the crisis is made more complicated when elders are victimized by their own family members and caregivers. Elder abuse overall uh, is not reported, at least according to the NIH, is not reported nearly as often as it happens. But they receive hundreds of thousands of reports a year. And uh, just looking at a Treasury report from 2018 that was just released this past week, the suspicious activity reports that banks and credit unions are required to file, there were, I want to say it's 200,000 suspicious activity reports filed last year that involved elder financial exploitation that the banks filed. Only one third of those were referred by the financial institution for further review. Beyond that, in their minds, the documentation was sufficient to protect themselves. So there's a lot of work to do. There's a reluctance on the part of the victims to report being exploited if they know. But if it's done by a caregiver or a loved one who may also be the caregiver. They may be concerned about what happens to those relationships, what happens to their care, and they're just embarrassed. So providing, I think physicians provide an important outlet. There are often periods of time where there are moments alone where they can ask questions. It can just be you know, a few simple questions you know, about how are you doing? Have you been able to balance your checkbook or have, you know, are all of your bills being paid on time? Are you being well cared for? You know, and that person-centered care that I'd like to believe that our healthcare system is providing, I think also extends to the financial services industry. And that uh, right now there's a national debate on the standard of care for financial professionals. There are those of us of the 660,000 people who are licensed to provide financial advice. Less than 100,000 of us are fiduciaries with a legal and a moral obligation to act in the client's best interest. You would think that if you walk into a financial institution that they are obligated by law to serve your best interest, and that would be incorrect. There's only a smaller subset where you receive that level of care. By the year 2035, For the very first time in American history, there will be more older adults than children in the United States. Many of these adults will face financial uncertainty. While there are many factors that contribute to the growing elder abuse problem, perhaps the most urgent call to action for all of us is to better understand how the issues of equality, dignity, and wealth disparity in America will continue to impact our aging society if we fail to face and grapple with these realities. Elder financial abuse is a growing issue because the percentage of the population that is at an age of vulnerability is growing daily as the baby boomer cohort advances toward age 65. The demographics of life in America are bringing us to this crisis of it's not just care, but it's trust. It's being vulnerable. Who can you trust? And then I think also 
If you look at inequality in the United States, if you look at the percentage of wealth that is attributed to the top 1% versus the bottom, call it 80%, the top 1% in the United States right now is right out about 39%. They control 39% of the country's wealth. The bottom 80% control only 26, 27% of the country's wealth. The number for the 1% is higher and the number a percentage of assets that the 80% control is the lowest that it's been in a generation. And if that trend continues, we'll see that imbalance promote behaviors which ultimately drive prosperity for a select few uh, and which leave uh, a widening number of people without resources to maintain uh, care, which for us is about dignity. All of this, everything we do, whether it's on the financial services side or the gerontology side, it's about dignity, maintaining your dignity. Lifestyle is about dignity. Healthcare for me is about dignity, and this is personal and professional. So the mission that we're on to make an impact in this field is about allowing people to live with dignity across their entire lifespan. Thank you, Danny, for taking the time to sit with us and for organizing and hosting all of our Miles Road Trip conversations during our stop in Louisville. We've included links in the show notes so you can learn more about the topics we covered in this episode. We've also included links to the United States Department of Justice and the National Elder Fraud Hotline in the event you need help or would like to report elder financial abuse. And finally, if you'd like to support this podcast and our project, please visit myalzheimers.net. Today's program was mixed by Woody Woodhall. This podcast is a production of Joe Digital Inc. and the Myalzheimer's Story Project. Raising awareness and helping Alzheimer's research one story at a time. I'm Zach Jordan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the My Alzheimer's Story Project Podcast.